Okay, good morning, uh, everybody. Uh, I'd like to welcome you all to the Daily Energy Markets uh, podcast. It is Tuesday, September the 5th. We are back uh, for the new season. Uh, and uh, a lot is happening on the energy markets, uh, not least of which is the sort of steady rise uh, of, over the last two months in oil prices, as many uh, were, I suppose, forecasting uh, ahead of the third quarter. Uh, but let's get the, the viewpoint of our um, three guests this morning. Andre Belli, professor and founder and CEO of Balsen, Omar Abedli, director of research at the Bahrain Center for Strategic and International and Energy Studies, and Ram Narayanan, director and vice president of strategic marketing and business development at Vedanta. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us and welcome back uh, after the summer break. Great to have you all with us. Um, uh, let me go to you uh, first, Omar, uh, and, and let's talk a little bit about what's happened to oil prices uh, and in the context, really, of OPEC and what it might do next. People are saying it's likely to roll over um, its cuts very soon uh, at the end of this week, next week. Uh, but Omar, are they, are they stuck now, perhaps, uh, in a bit of a dilemma, OPEC, because of uh, what to do next. Essentially, we've seen prices improve a lot over the last two months. So why should they be cutting more at this stage? Uh, well, I think they want to, first of all, they don't want to do anything. They, the, their goal has been for the, you know, for the last five years and will continue to be for the foreseeable future to maintain price stability. Um, uh, they have done a pretty good job of doing that, uh, this, given the um, various uh, uh, sources of instability in the oil markets, whether they're geopolitical tensions, supply disruptions, uh, up and down e economies, and so on and so forth. Uh, and so for that reason, it's likely that they're going to want to continue. Uh, in particular, they've got an eye on the Chinese economy, which seems to be going in the wrong direction. Uh, and so that they certainly don't want to, uh, uh, you know, open the, uh, the, the spigots uh, too early. In addition to that, They've got a good thing going. They've got Russia uh, seemingly uh, uh, complying at uh, historically uh, uh, high levels, uh, and they don't need to, uh, you know, get already back to uh, full pumping, full pumping ahead. Uh, so I think it's very much a case of as you were. Uh, and in the background, you've also got, you know, the BRICS, uh, you know, expansion uh, invitation going out to several key OPEC members: Iran, Saudi Arabia, the UAE. Uh, which will be joining a club that already features China and, and Russia and India. Uh, and so very much, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, giving an air of demonstrating stability, demonstrating cohesion, uh, uh, very much the order of the day. Okay. All right. I'll come back to you on that a bit with a follow-up. But Ram, welcome again. Let me go to you a little bit because, uh, of course, India is a huge <clears throat> consumer and, and, you know, it can't be happy to have seen prices go up by... Uh, about you know over ten dollars uh, in in the last uh, two months. That's that's not stability. That's not price stability to me. Uh, how 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 is India pursuing sort of seeing this? Yeah, thanks, Ella. Good to be back again. Uh, yes, you are right in uh, saying since India imports almost 80, 85 percent of its energy needs, this is not good news. Uh, oil touching close to ninety is not good news at all for the economy. Especially the economy is doing pretty well. And we also have to keep in mind that India is approaching its general elections. So there are news that elections might be preponed also. Uh, so therefore, like, you know, this news certainly is not in the right direction. And demand is also pretty firm in India right now. Apart from the economy, we just entered into festive season in India. The next two months is full of festivities all over India. 
So therefore, the demand we see is pretty strong. So given the strong demand, the election background, and the government does not want to jeopardize the economy, the one of, because one of the stickiest points for the present government has been the way it has controlled inflation, um, way it has handled inflation rather, because we saw food inflation going up to 11% last month, and it has, not, it has come down a bit, but certainly it has not subsided to a large extent, and especially the festivity, festive, festive season on. So all this put together, it's not great news for India with oil, with oil touching $90 right now. And also, the, given the fact that, you know, the import of Russian crude has also come down, which is coming at a huge discount. So net at all put together, it's not great news for India. And I'm sure the government will be seriously concerned about it. In fact, and, and it is. Why, and why have imports of Russian crude come down? Is there less available? One is less availability. B is like, you know, in the last two to three months, we had a number of refinery shutdowns across the different refiners in India, both private as well as uh, the public sector refineries. And thirdly, you have to see that India is importing quite a lot of urals uh, amongst the uh, oil, amongst uh, oil grades. And the urals and the urals discount has come down. So three to four months back, it was 20 to $25. Now at present, it's soaring between 14 to $15. Mm-hmm. So that's three major reasons why it's come down. And as, as I said earlier also, geopolitical considerations will play a big part, uh, given the fact that Russia is aligned a little bit more with China. And India has given, uh, given its equations to all the Middle East countries, especially Saudi Arabia. So therefore, it was bound to happen that Russian imports was uh, bound to come down. In fact, I'm a little bit surprised at the rate at which it has come down. Uh, but yeah, at 40, 42% of uh, total India of total of India's import needs, Russian imports had hit its cap and it was bound to come down. But uh, frankly, I'm surprised at the rate at which it has come down. Okay. Um, Andre, welcome. Great to see you again. Uh, I know that you don't have access to Russian figures per se, but even if you were to speculate as to why, <clears throat> you know, Russian exports to India have dropped, but uh, within the OPEC plus sort of group argument, a lot of uh, comments being made in the last few days that uh, Russia's production is finally beginning to suffer. Uh, and so it's kind of easier for it to kind of comply to the cuts that it said it would do earlier this year, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that Saudi might be sort of banking on that party. What, what's your sense about that? Do you think there's been a shift at all in Russian production? Are we seeing that evidence in data on the water, et cetera? Well, uh, the Europe in Russian exports, let's say like this, because um, as you know, uh, Russia has a very strong uh, domestic demand for oil, oil products, uh, and half of production goes abroad and half of production more or less stays home. And how we can observe the market impact is by looking at the export figures. And the export figures have been decreasing lately, and reportedly they have been decreasing because of the India's slowdown. And uh, colleagues can uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but a number of maintenance operations on refineries in India slowed down a possibility for Russian crude to get to India. Uh, So it's not really related to uh, Russian dynamics, neither is related to broader geopolitical context such as sanctions, uh, but is, um, I would say, temporary uh, issue. However, in the midterm, uh, sanctions have a great effect on Russia. I still maintain this. But in this particular decline in exports, it's not really a Russia case. 
Okay, so it's other other factors affecting that. Um, Almar, just back to you uh, on on sort of OPEC's decision or how it how it sort of uh, carries itself going forward. I mean, is it a bit of a dilemma? Okay, the Chinese figures speak for themselves. Some people argue that you know China is still growing; it's just decelerating. So, so what's the problem? Uh, and at the same time, Amar, the U.S. picture looks pretty good uh, in terms of sort of global economy impact, if you like, demand on Chinese products, whatever. So, so are things going to be a bit trickier for the fourth quarter, given that this sort of even mild recession hasn't even hit the U.S. yet? Um, Surely that sort of throws a bit of a spanner in the works for OPEC. I mean, I know they do things month by month, but is it possible that they will, uh, you know, not do anything, not roll over uh, these cuts for the time being, as the Fed policy also kind of adjusts to stabilize? First of all, remember that because of the, you know, sharp cuts they've been doing over the last year, especially Saudi Arabia, there's a lot of excess capacity ready to bring online instantly, if need be, if anything like a spike emerges. So they're in a very good position. Add to that that you know Iran has you know seemingly gone you know surpassed sanctions. It's ready to be you know reintegrated back into the you know full oil production. Uh, so on the supply side, they've got breathing room and uh, mm. breathing that they can uh, deploy you know at, at a moment's notice. And then on the demand side, uh, I think that um, what China is going through, uh, although it's still growing, the deceleration, I think there are some significant question marks over the potential, you know, possibility of systemic weaknesses in, in the Chinese economy or the Chinese growth model. Uh, and so uh, given that, you know, OPEC has put itself in a position where it can react to price spikes much more quickly than, uh, uh, than you know, than, than before, it's better to, uh, uh, for them to continue this sort of cautious approach and extend and operate on that basis. I think that's what their mentality is at the moment. And then the Fed, you know, I mean, it's it's still not cutting rates. <laughs> so it's, you know, the, uh, uh, and it seems to be, you know, I have to say the Fed, you know, pretty much uh, took a major hit to its uh, to its uh, credibility a couple of years ago when this bad inflation started. And they were saying, "Oh, it's transient. Oh, it's transient. Oh, it's transient." And they're realizing. They're realizing. I think they've just digested that the only way they can regain credit, regain credibility, is to go. There's something to listen to what Volcker did in the early '80s, which is to go to really, really, really deep and painful cuts. And they're willing to do it in a way that arguably exceeds what is necessary to achieve price stability. So I think that uh, OPEC is, you know, has an understanding of the political economy of the Fed's decision making. And so that's why they're, you know, they're continuing on this line. It's a lot easier to instantly expand production if need be, than it is to instantly cut production if need be. So that's why there's a sort of this asymmetry uh, that you're witnessing. Okay, uh, Ram, just to go to you on sort of that excess capacity coming from other OPEC members. I mean, I know you know you're, you you take a lot obviously from Saudi. You're now switching back to Saudi a bit more than you than India had been uh, earlier this year. Um, but in terms of other, you know, as a consumer, are you feeling reassured by the fact that there are, is other supply now? Sort of more Iranian coming aboard. There's an article there today mentioning Nigerian productions kind of recovering a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, as a consumer, how how are you feeling about uh, supply in general? I mean, before the summer, the, the comment was still that there's too much supply, obviously, hence the OPEC action. But from a consumer point of view, uh, are you reassured by that from what you're hearing? Yes. 
Yes, certainly. Right now, the way uh, the Indian imports has been able to like you know, shift from, let's say, the shortfall in Russia to Saudi and Iraq, that is certainly reassuring. But in the past also, like they have been regular supplies to India. So therefore, India did have its sort of supply chain built up. And India is also building up its you know, strategic reserves also. So that's another reassuring thing for which they are able to get the sources from all across. Uh, but, the, but the point is, right, and what is concerning in India is the way OPEC has done, given the fact that inflation is still pretty high across the world. And the sort of like, you know, the global South countries, as they call it right now, are facing the pinch of high inflation. So at this, uh, this point of time, like, you know, probably a little bit considerable, uh, considerate action by the OPEC would have been appreciated in India. Uh, because like in any increase in oil price is going to push up inflation in India, and we are still facing high inflation. So A, the reassuring point is, yes, we've been able to secure the oil supplies, and I don't think in the future will be any concern getting the oil supplies. But the, as I told earlier, the cost of oil supplies, which is going up, it's certainly a big concern. And that's something which I think, like, you know, something which maybe probably a bit of diplomatic channels will be done to look into it. Okay, Andre, let's talk a bit about Europe uh, and inflation, uh, not coming as under control as it is in the US yet. Uh, and also, if you can give us your perspective on, on the feeling now as, as we head into winter, uh, whether there's the sort of same trepidation or, or nervousness about cost of living, uh, gas prices to come, obviously. Uh, what's the sort of outlook for that, do you think, as we approach winter in Europe from a consumer point of view? Uh, well, the overall crisis like it was last year is already back. So um, we are not living the same spiral of inflation nor the same uh, shock of energy supplies and pricing like it was last year. Uh, however, it was very important to understand that risks are still present. And uh, for instance, uh, European underground storages are now filled by 90%, uh, and that's actually record high for this time of the year. But we have to understand that um, underground storages provide only one third of the month in winter, and uh, the remaining has to be purchased with uh, LNG. But most of the European utilities don't have long-term contracts on LNG, and um, they have in, in with piped gas from Russia instead, which does not flow, or the remainings of Russian piped gas risks not to flow anymore. Uh, and uh, once there is a problem, such as we have seen uh, in Australia, a strike in Australia, their operator, Chevron, has to purchase LNG in the US to ensure that the long-term supply contracts, mainly with the Asians, are prioritized and implemented. Uh, and in this case, Europeans are kind of left aside in this context. So uh, it's a tricky situation, which is not risk-free. Yeah, and even, but I mean, Europe last year in that crisis did compete with Asia, didn't it? Very, I mean, it had, it could afford, let's say, the spot LNG more, even when prices were spiking, took a lot of US LNG and took, you know, LNG away from Asia. Uh, you know, we have an article today saying that there's LNG tankers already heading to Britain, Belgium, Netherlands, uh, and Germany. Um, Again, I mean, I know the LNG market has had, it's been quite a yo-yo in the last five years, really. We've literally had extremes uh, every year come on board. Um, 
will we have the same situation if we get a cold winter, if we get a, an initial sort of early spike? Will Asia be able to compete for spot LNG if it needs extra LNG, et cetera? Or will it switch more to coal as it did last year? I'll go to Dram after that about India and coal as well. But uh, Andre, your, your opinion on that? Well, uh, so far, we are hearing very much about uh, uh, a forthcoming Asian, particularly Chinese uh, gas demand, which will absorb all the uh, capacities, but uh, so far we didn't see it. We haven't seen it yet. Uh, we heard a lot about, but uh, there is no evidence that is actually happening. The risk is more on the supply side. Uh, for instance, uh, Europe relies now a lot on the United States, but demand, gas demand in the United States is growing. If in China, coal is mm. not outplaced by natural gas, in the United States, it is actually outplaced by natural gas. And uh, that is way more uh, problematic, um, at least something to watch at, as I would say. Okay, thanks. Ram, let me just go to you about uh, you know gas versus coal energy. Uh, we've got an article today that says India extends validity of coal import directives. Um, I mean, India will do whatever it takes, right, to keep its energy uh, going. Uh, and as, as oil prices rise, you know, how, how, how much more is it going to switch to coal this winter, do you think? And what oil price would it take? Some people are saying it's going to hit $100 before the end of the year. Yeah, in fact, um, I was just uh, speaking to some government officials today morning, where certainly the, uh, the directives have been given to all the power plants across India to import coal and cover, cover the requirements at least in March of 2024. And why March of 2024? That's when the elections are expected to be held, right in March or April of 2020, 2024. Um, so the, because we are uh, because what has also happened is power demand in the month of August and September has been unusually high. A because like you know the monsoons have not been as high as what was expected to be, and the weather is pretty warm for September. In fact, in Mumbai where I live today morning, I was sweating when I when I came to office, which is very very unusual for this time of the year. So because of high power demand, as I said earlier, the festive, festive season has just started in India. So therefore, demand is going to be high. So therefore, um, the government has told um, all the power plants to import their coal requirements as, and cover it up. Now, the second part of the question is what uh, to how much it will go up to. I think India's uh, coal mix is about something like 65 to 70 percent. So probably plus minus two or three percent. So that's what. But um, I don't see a major decrease in coal consumption in India, at least for the next one year. And we also have to keep in the background that India's domestic coal production has also been pretty good. I think we've seen an increase on a year on a year on year basis also, which has been pretty high numbers also. Now, the second part of the question is what um, oil price it will move it up. Difficult to answer that question because given the fact that uh, the power demand has to be met. Uh, but as I said earlier, like anything, I mean, right now also it's pretty high price for India. And even if it touches 100 also, like, you know, it's going to be pretty bad for the Indian economy. So, so net net is, I think the coal, coal imports are going to continue for quite some time in India. Okay, thanks, That's Ram. That's what Omar, that looks to be. That, yeah. um, is, there, is there any, you know, in terms of the $100 mark, which, you know, just two months ago, everyone was saying not going to happen this year. Now everyone's saying is going to happen by the end of the year how quickly uh, things can change, obviously, in this market. Um, is there a price at which OPEC would 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 stop cutting, really? I mean, they, they want that magic $90 to stay, don't they? So they're going to have to kind of keep going to stabilize that. At what point, as we inch towards 100, will we see them slowing down, do you think, if at all? 
So I think I think what's important to consider is uh, if as it inches up to 100, what's causing that inching up to 100? Is it, if it's something like you know transient supply cuts or uh, supply problems, hurricanes, you know that kind of thing, mm. then I think you're you're less likely to see you know an intervention because it would be something that is generally acknowledged to be transient, so no need to you know change the system. But if it's something that looks like it's some looking going to last, like some sort of sustained weakness in the Chinese economy, as Ram mentioned, maybe some problems in the Indian economy, then I think that's a, a one point where you'll see an intervention on economic grounds. Add to that, that there may be some political pressure for them to do that, not coming from the West, ironically, maybe coming from India and China uh, along the you know the the BRICS now uh, nexus, whereby they say, "Look, can you can you help us out? Can you cut down? Can you increase oil production and, and put, push prices a little bit lower?" Uh, which would be, as I say, you know, very very symbolic uh, of the sort of transformations we're seeing uh, in the world. Okay, well, look, there's a survey question which addresses China's sort of strategy going forward. Will it prior? It will prioritize strategic geopolitical strength over more economic stimulus, i.e., fund the military and not its bank bailouts. I don't know if it's at the moment as a dilemma where it's putting its funds. It's certainly, uh, you know, in a big transition, as Omar was mentioning earlier today, uh, in terms of how well that transition is going. Some people say it's it's going okay. You know, it's a big transition from a sort of, uh, I suppose, industrial manufacturing base to, to the service economy. Uh, and there have been some relatively positive numbers on, on manufacturing actually recently uh, in China. But, but criticism still, Omar, on how much commitment China's making on its bailouts, right? The bank bailouts, the property company sector, the property sector bailouts, that hasn't come through yet. Um, but first, let's just finish the survey. Let's get everyone to agree or disagree that it's prioritizing geopolitical strength over economic stimulus. Do you agree or not agree? Uh, and, you know, let's see what people say. Um, Amar, just to stick with you on that, I mean, would you say that's kind of the current, would you agree with that at the moment, i.e. not enough economic stimulus has gone gone through? Because well, of also, I think that mm. I mean, one view I've heard, which I'm somewhat sympathetic with, is that now that you know, Xi Jinping has reaffirmed himself as you know leader for the for the for the coming period, and has gone past the sort of political cycle uh, pressures, uh, he wants to um, you know take some feed the uh, uh, the Chinese economy some you know bitter medicine. Uh, there's an acknowledgement that the existing economic model and its emphasis uh, on real estate is not sustainable. Uh, and is uh, and creates you know harmful you know uh, tumult uh, and, and, and volatility in the Chinese economy, and the only way to get this out of the system is just to not you know plow in with the stimulus, uh, and just to let you know whoever needs to suffer uh, financial ruin to put it bluntly to suffer it. Uh, and to create that discipline, because, you know, I mean, I'm from Bahrain and in the region in Kuwait, for example, we've had this uh, uh, historic cycle of uh, uh, debt forgiveness, which is another word for, for another form of fiscal stimulus. And it, and it you know, and it engenders, you know, and the moral hazard it engenders, you know, imprudent investments. And I think that there may be, and I'm sympathetic to this idea that China, China's leadership is wants to, you know, move the economy in a different direction. So in that case, uh, it's not sort of political um, dilly-dallying dilly or, or, or uh, you know, vacillating. It's more like a message, um, albeit a quietly delivered one, that, you know, enough, enough with the uh, casino real estate model. 
Okay, Andre, let's just talk a bit about Russia again. Um, just in terms of that, you know, revenue, the revenue model for Russia, what's happening, obviously, it's having to continuously fund its war. Uh, and that, I mean, as we said earlier, that's that's perhaps beginning to pinch. I mean, from a revenue point of view, uh, what are the indications that you're hearing about? Um, clearly, uh, the increase in oil prices has helped it a lot in the last couple of months. Does that feed through in any major significant way? What? How will Russia, do you think, uh, act with an OPEC plus as a result? Will it actually commit to another half a million in cuts? Uh, uh, will it will it have to anyway because of production? I mean, where where do you think it sits? Because for most of this year, it's been pretty irrelevant in OPEC plus. Let's let's admit, and 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 Saudi's been carrying the mantle, happy to do that, and Russia has benefited so far. Do we see more expectation placed on Russia going forward? Mm, difficult to say. Uh, I think it is difficult to say. There are various possibilities that may go. Of course, Russia may prioritize. Um, a more elevated price, uh, but uh, at the same time, it has to look at the situation overall. Uh, and I guess uh, the commitment within the OPEC Plus will still work. In particularly, that uh, Moscow seems to be willing to get out of the political isolation. And if it there are Tense relations with um, OPEC plus and uh, uh, Saudi Arabia goes to another price war with Russia, then Russia will be even more isolated and uh, will also suffer from budgetary viewpoint. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so I would say that it is unlikely that Moscow will dare um, having another uh, area of tensions with uh, uh, with the Persian Gulf countries, but um, it is difficult to predict. Okay, thanks uh, for that. Ram, let me go to you a bit about this BRICS. Uh, there was recently obviously a meeting and, and China is looking to sort of expand that group into sort of the new sort of power base uh, of the world. India and China obviously have their disagreements as well, don't they, politically and geopolitically speaking, uh, and even economically maybe. So, you know, is India going to change its stance at all with regards to how it's dealing with China versus the West? I know it has its neutral policy firmly in place, but how, how are the dynamics impacting, do you think, thinking there as elections also come uh, come to the fore next year? Yeah, see, right now, India is in a sort of sweet spot, as I said earlier, like, you know, in the relations with the West as well as with Russia. And of course, there are quite a, quite a number of issues which Edward knows about China also. So India's policy right now is how to align with everybody. Now coming to BRICS expansion, obviously, like, you know, I think one of the thoughts behind is how it can be used as an anti-West model and become a sort of a platform for the global South, as they call it. India obviously has had some reservations about it. And I think what I heard about from the BRICS discussion was um, that, that India's reservations were taken care of. And I think there's also talk about a BRICS currency being talked about it, which India has opposed to. I think that is sort of in concurrence with India's you know, alignment to the West also. So as regards to China, still there are quite a number of border issues, quite a number of economic issues is still going on. But still the trade between India and China is still on. It's not that it's reduced much as a whole. Um, so therefore, I would expect that given the elections are coming near right now, so not much of a change is going to happen in India's stance right now. And I'm sure everybody knows in the next two, three days, we are having the G20 summit in New Delhi. 
and uh, India is looking forward to stamp its authority or stamp mm. its presence as a global superpower, as a global major player, as I would say. So, therefore, like you know, in terms of in terms of uh, geopolitical stance, I don't see a big difference uh, coming in India's stance over the next few months till the elections get over and the new government takes over. Of course, G Xi Jinping is not going to show up for that G20 summit. So, yeah, today Monday so scared that you know the we first. We don't have China, so <laughs> the president. So and today Monday so scared, as you had said, the first lady of US she tested positive for COVID, and but uh, uh -huh. we were told that Joe Biden is uh, has tested negative. So hopefully, okay. and I'm sure he'll be able to make it. Maybe you should rest anyway, for many other reasons. <laughs> but there's right, the survey yeah, question, and I'm going to just go to Amar to close up on a question on Gulf economies. But uh, let's have a look at that. So that's pretty pretty tight, really. Agree, disagree, 55-45. So it's probably a mix, mix of the two. Amar, just to close up with you, give us a sense. You mentioned uh, Bahrain and you know how it deals, and, and Kuwait, obviously, and a few of the Gulf economies how they've dealt in the past with their sort of windfall gains, et cetera, uh, and, and, you know, uh, you know and, and debt. I mean, they don't have as much debt as the West. But again, I mean, you know, Gulf oil producers having, having a great year, obviously, uh, this year and, and, and also last year, not a bad year at all. Um, how critical are those revenues to, obviously, they're critical to these projects that Saudi has and, and the UAE has going forward. But um, you know what, what's what's the thinking there in terms of how they're managing uh, these gains that they're that they're getting from oil prices, and do you think there has been a fundamental shift in that expenditure? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, the there is a fundamental shift because through previous booms, what we've what we've seen is increased public sector hiring and uh, increased you know bonuses for for, for, for civil servants. Uh, and you know what I would call, you know, manifestly, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, poorly chosen uh, mega projects. On this occasion, we're seeing a lot more discipline when it comes to public sector hiring. We're not seeing the uh, sort of uh, uh, Santa Claus, you know, bonuses for everyone style uh, uh, distributions. Uh, so, you know, it's, they've successfully arrested that part. The big question mark remarks remains over, you know, uh, the investments they are making. And when it comes to these alternative, this, this newer generation of mega projects and giga projects, I hear they've been upgraded from mega projects to giga projects, um, is that, you know, are these going to work? Are these going to deliver the sorts of returns? Um, you know, at the moment, uh, there's big question marks over uh, how over some of these really exciting projects where they're going to deliver. If you just take the simple example of the, uh, you know, now at the beginning of the football season, you know, Saudi uh, pro pro league, you know, they're spending huge amounts of money on on bringing players, hundreds of millions of uh, of dollars, and and it's it's you know there is a plan. Um, is this plan going to deliver? We will have to wait and see. It's the same with the golf. It's the same with the Formula One. And that's just in the sporting domain. And then we're still waiting to see what's going to happen with Neom, with the Winter Olympics, uh, with the World Cup bid, supposedly Saudi Arabia and, uh, and uh, you know, in Egypt and Greece. So I think that there's definitely much more discipline than before to answer your question. But the question is, is this, uh, uh, is the um, well-intentioned alternative direction for expenditure 
going to deliver the kind of returns they need to maintain their exceptionally high living standards. And for that, I'm afraid the jury's out. We'll have to. Yeah. We'll have to and, al- and also to, to, to actually shift their economic model as, as they intend to over time. And of course, we didn't talk about how inflation is going to be is hitting the Gulf as well. But we'll leave that for another another day. Uh, thanks so much to Amar, Andre and Ram for joining us today. Thanks, everybody, for joining us and look forward to seeing you tomorrow. All the best.